1: Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: The greatest trick the devil ever
2: pulled was convincing the world. Didn't it sense? <laughs> Open the hot day doors now.
3: I'm sorry, again. I'm afraid I can't do that.
2: the most. You're the Go
1: ahead. Make my day.
2: Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of Black Hole Cinema with your host, Tony Black. This time around, we're... Back to slightly normal procedure. Two film reviews, quite big hitters uh, right now in the cinema. Two quite big franchise movies. And we will also have one of my friends in to discuss their favourite movie and why they believe it's something you should watch if you haven't already. Although I suspect if you're a film fan, you've probably watched the one we're going to talk about today. But we'll see. So without further ado... Let's get on with this week's cinema. All right, first up, let's talk about Muppet's Most Wanted. (laughs) It's Constantine, the world's most dangerous frog. Check this out. Ah.
3: Oh, look, it's Kermit. Ah. What did you do with Kermit?
0: (laughs) There must be some mistake. I'm Kermit the Frog. I'm not Constantine. You're going to be here a while. Permitty Frog here. here the Frog here.
2: Okay, so Muppet's most wanted is of course the sequel to the 2011 film The Muppets, which of course brought back everyone's favorite little cuddly creatures onto the big screen after quite a few years uh, in the wilderness. In fact, looking at the list of Muppet movies, it was actually 12 years between The Muppets in 2011 and Muppets from Space in 1999. So there was a long, long gap where the Muppets really weren't in, in much circulation. And they were, they went off the grid in the first decade of, of the 21st century, basically, effectively. And probably the last real Muppet film people really remember... Is a Muppet Christmas Carol, which was over twenty years ago. You know, there was, then there was Muppet Treasure Island and Muppets from Space, but they're far less well known than the Muppet Christmas Carol, which most people would agree is still the best Muppets movie. Even though the Muppets itself was really, really good, I think it was a lot better than people expected it to be. Simply because what it did was very self-referentially, very fourth wall, very self-knowingly made the point about how the Muppets had fallen out of, of the public consciousness to a degree. And the movie was itself about them finding themselves again, coming back together, putting the band back together essentially, discovering who they were and that they were a family and that they still had something to offer people in this age of all these different things out there. And, and that, was, that was the journey that the Muppets took throughout that whole film. And, of course, there was this quite sweet love story between Amy Adams and Jason Segel as well, which, which added like that extra dimension, certainly for the adults as well. And it could have been really schmaltzy and saturate saccharine, but it wasn't. It was really nice. So The Muppets really had this great little story that was both nodding to its own past and nodding to the fact that the actual franchise had fallen out of, not, if not favour, then out of knowledge, out of consciousness. So, and that, of course, ended with them back in the public eye, having succeeded, having, you know, the Muppets were back, yeah. So what does a sequel do? A sequel naturally, obviously, picks up that baton and runs with it. And in a way, this is like a... a, It wasn't a reboot, but it was almost like a revival, in a sense. So even though there were six movies before then, the Muppets, in a way, felt like the first one again. It felt like the rebirth of the whole franchise. So the sequel, inevitably, is going to be... Taking that and doing something with it and pushing it further, so inevitably, you'd imagine if the Muppets are, you know, have done well, have reached a certain point, the next film is going to be about them going further. You know, what do they do? They're 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 well known again, they're well loved. Where does it go from here? So Muppets Most Wanted decides to take a bit of a different turn. It's got the same people involved. You know, James Bobbin is still directing, and he did a great job with the Muppets. Co-writing with Nicholas Stoller, who again was involved in the first Muppets film so it's the same crew back again in terms of behind the scenes so in terms of the way it looks and the way it's filmed it's a similar kind of thing the only difference is that they choose to go with a very 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 different story for this Uh, instead of being quite a sweet love story around the whole idea of family and them coming together and all this self-referential stuff Muppets Most Wanted is a crime caper basically and it, it goes into a bit more of the old school Muppets territory and that all of those Muppets films played a little bit on you know, various themes or certain franchises or, or film ideas like Treasure Island, like In Space, like the Christmas Carol thing. And it, it, it does that, which the Muppets didn't do. The Muppets was just more straightforward to an extent. But this goes back to that idea of each film kind of almost being a gimmick. And that's always quite dangerous, in a sense, because it can work, and it, it, it sometimes works, sometimes it doesn't work. And it's fair to say that in the case of Most Wanted, it doesn't quite work, which is a shame, because it, the Muppets had really established itself and, and got itself to a point where it was ready to go in anywhere. It was a huge hit, people loved it, critically liked, loved by fans, where's it going to go? And Most Wanted drops the ball a little bit, unfortunately. It's kind of like it's, it's a crime caper. So it's kind of got that little, slightly Pink Panther esque campness to it. You know, it's set in in Europe. Well, they call it they call it a world tour, but it's not a world tour. It's set, it's set entirely in Europe. It's typically American in that sense. In fact, this film is frighteningly American in how borderline racist it sometimes is. And all the way through, I was thinking, no, it's a kids' film. It is a kids' film technically. It's technically a kids' film, even though we all know that Muppet films aren't quite kids' films. You know, there is a lot of jokes and a lot for adults. And adults, if anything, have got more invested in these characters than kids to an extent because they grew up with them themselves. So, you know, when they're literally going to places like Ireland and they get off the train and and Dublin looks like it's it's still in the 1920s with Irish flat cap people and and it's, you know, and you go to London and it's you know, and it's just like, well, you know, it, it, this is all a bit old-fashioned, but it kind of fits the tone they're going for in a way, which is quite old-fashioned, it is a little bit, um, it's, it's got silly accents in it, it's got people with trench coats, it's got high-tech te- high high-tech thefts of museums, you know, people... To to explosions on stages, people thracking walls with big sledgehammers to break into the back. It's it's got all that kind of old school caper element to it, and that's that's where you have to forgive it slightly. Really, the whole the whole way through this, actually, I felt I felt my mind kept going. I'll forgive that. I'll forgive that. I'll forgive that. Even though because it's the Muppets, really, even though fundamentally, I I kept seeing things that didn't work. The story, for one, doesn't. Works fully simply because, yeah, it takes the Muppets onto this world in inverted commas tour, and it, and it punches that element up, which is which is fine, and that that's a, that's a good idea, and it's a natural extension to it in a way. They're they're all together, they're about to go off and do this, and then of course it, the, the complication because they 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 got to that point that in the first movie, the complication here is the fact that they face the plot of um, this Kermit doppelganger called Constantine, who's this. The, the world's greatest criminal frog, basically, escapes prison and he tools up with uh, Ricky Gervais's stooge, a guy called Dominic Bad Guy, although he pronounces it Bad Guy, because uh, he's French. Um, which is, a, a, you know, one of those self-referential nods which this film does have to the ideas of, of, of story and plot and, and things like that. So, you know, right from the off we know that Gervais is a bad guy and he's working with Constantine and, and ultimately involves Constantine taking Kermit's place in order to help uh, he and, and, and Gervais st- conduct these series of, of heists in museums and things like that, so he has got that cape element. But what it does, though, is, apart from the fact it, it sidelines Kermit from all the other Muppets, which I can see why they did that, but it's just not as fun without Kermit involved with them all. But it tries to hang the belief that none of them these Muppets would really twig that Constantine, who talks like this and he's got a very silly accent and he's <laughs> evil and all this stuff, that they wouldn't quite twig that he is not Kermit. And, and that is, it is a central joke, you know, it is something that they that is made, you know, pointed out. And and to be fair, Walter, who was a very crucial character in the first Muppets film, he's the only one, well, apart from Animal as well, who kind of susses it out straight away, but he's the only one who... who Kind of figures out that something's not quite right, but it takes so long to get to that point where the Muppets actually start to twig that you know this isn't this isn't right, and that you feel like it's almost that it's treating them a bit too dumb. You know, what the, the Muppets is is one th- is many things, but it's not it's never been dumb. It's never been stupid. It's never treated the Muppets as being a bit stupid, and that's kind of what this does. And I have to, I have to say that, that that didn't sit well with me in the whole idea that I thought, yes, okay, I understand why it's taking them a while to figure this out because the plot needs that, but it shouldn't need that. That the, the character should still come first. The character still did come first in The Muppets before this. And I felt that it was really straining to make it work at the expense of The Muppets. I and, mean, you know, quite often as well, you don't see that much of them. I mean, Kermit's still got a good arc. Even though he spends most of the film in this Russian gulag, being you know with, with, where Tina Fey's you know um, love love love-struck guard ultimately starts to fall in love with him, and that's all fine. And then he becomes you know he starts to create a review and all this and and all these camp prisoners, including Rayliotta and Danny Trejo. And I, 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 you've got to see it to believe it, really. To, I mean, I, I know they're camping it up and they're having fun, but my god, uh, you, you, you <laughs> it's a bit too much. But then, so he's in there and. He's just, you know, um, getting on with it, and he's waiting. And he started to question whether or not these people love him and everything like that. But it felt like, well, we know they love you. You're Kermit the Frog. Everybody in the world loves Kermit the Frog. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you're a muppet or you're a human. What? Why did we really need that? The question. The answer to that question is why did we really need that? Is because the plot needed it. Is because we needed to have Kermit out the way so we could do the Constantine thing. And in fairness, Constantine is he's, he's a lot of fun. I really did like him. He's a great sort of typically old school silly villain who can, you know, kick, kick his ass his way through things, and he's, he's got a stupid accent, and he's very sort of, oh yeah, that's what Will Doors is, and all that, and he's, he's good, and so he, he, he was worth seeing in many ways, it was worth doing for him, but at the same time, the Muppets get short shrift, and quite a lot of them don't get enough to do quite often, because it's so focused on Constantine and Kermit and uh, Gervais, and Tina Fey, that a lot of them, including Miss Piggy, believe it or not, Miss Piggy isn't in that much of the first half of it, really. Uh, it's only, she, she plays a very central role as the film gets to the end. But it's, you know, and she does have a good through line through this in terms of, of how her relationship with Kermit, which is important to the whole plot. But it's, you know, it's Miss Piggy. You know, she, she, she needed to have more to do. Although, in fairness, the best part of the film is one of the musical numbers where Constantine tries to romance her because he has to in order to keep his pretense up, and that's very funny. And, it, and it, is, it is enjoyable, and it is fun, and there are jokes that work, but there are an equal amount of jokes that don't work, and that do fall flat on their face. As, as indeed, there are quite a lot of, of the typical cameos by, by a range of actors. I mean, I've spotted a ton of them. I mean, it, part of the fun is actually trying to think, oh, that's, that's such and such, oh, that's Tom Hiddleston, oh, that's, you know, um, which, is, which is great, and that is part of the fun, certainly for the adults. But some of those even fall down, you know, and they're not, they don't quite work. So it, whereas The Muppets, it had a lot, most of the gags really hit home, although there was a heart to it. And that is the big thing that's lacking here, heart. This doesn't have that same sense of, of sweetness and love that the first film did. And I don't know why, because it, it's, it naturally is extending from that. And it's got the same people involved and everything, but the script just isn't good enough. compared to the last one, the story isn't really good enough and it means that the heart and soul that the Muppets had that love for everything it doesn't really it's not really there and it it feels a lot more like it's constructed purely for the gimmick in order to make the gimmick work and the gimmick won't work unless you care The, the 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 reason that Christmas Carol works so well Muppet Christmas Carol is because You really did. You really did care. And when Michael Caine finally is involved in that final song at the end, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. You know, and it's such, that is still, you know, regardless of the fact it's a comedy, it is one of the best adaptations of Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol that has ever been done on film. This, however, it feels weak. It just feels like it's propping itself up on different things. And even the actors involved don't look comfortable. Gevayce doesn't. Ironically, Ricky Gervais does not look comfortable, even though he loves the Muppets. He's loved the Muppets since he was young, and he's a massive, massive fan of them. And he doesn't look like he's really enjoying himself as much as you'd expect, you know. And it just—it doesn't click. Fundamentally, it doesn't click. It doesn't all come together. But it is fun. Kids will find themselves enjoying it. Although I was—I was noting the fact that there were there were families behind me in the showing and there was not that much laughter coming from kids. So I can't help but wonder if they did get a lot of this and they did enjoy a lot of this. But it is fun, there are points to recommend it, but it is a definite step down from the Muppets. And I hope that that means that they, they review how they did this and they review what they took from it and they go, if not back in the direction the Muppets went, maybe a little bit more out of the gimmick territory and into something that is much more about The warmth and the humor and these characters, as opposed to being the Muppets do this genre. Worth saying, but
0: it's not great. Hit it, boys. This sprint. Do you guys think that Kermit's been acting a little weird lately? That's ridiculous. He's never been more caring or devoted to me. Yeah, that's what we're saying. Ricky Gervais, Ty Burrell, and Tina Fey. This is my cow. It is
2: illegal now for his massive (laughs) Plus, so many Hollywood stars. It'll leave you wanting more. Yeah, no more. Okay, welcome back, everybody. And we're now in the section where it's get a guest on, get them to tell their favorite movie and talk about it with me. Still struggling for a title with this. I was going to say, you need something a bit better than that. I so. know, it's not very punchy, is it? I'm still struggling. Um,
3: Would you run that up a flagpole and salute it?
2: <laughs> it's the kind of marketing
3: bollocks I get talked about in works in sometimes.
2: Yeah, that, that's, that'd probably be a better title, actually, than what I just <laughs> did. <laughs> um, yes, my guest um, today is uh, the venerable Mr. Adam Scott. Thank you for coming on, Adam. You're welcome. Uh, do you want to tell us what uh, movie film you've chosen for this conversation? <laughs>
3: Yeah, Yes, I suppose a better, otherwise we're going to have a hard time talking about it Than in that case. I mean, when it comes to the question of my favourite film, I and mean, as I'm sure you've probably had with others, and you like this yourself as well, Tony, there's obviously several, but yeah. for me, in terms of the one, that, the reason I'm picking this film particularly is because this is the one that I tend to measure before and after, mm. if you see what I mean, this is one of the films that really... Got me interested in movies as an art form, and just and developed something into, into something of an obsession as it's gone on. Um, and it's Bryan Singh as the usual suspect.
2: What a fantastic choice! I, I, I said when uh, when I asked you, I think it was over Twitter, um, what your film was when you said Unusual Suspects. Uh, the Unusual Suspects. When you said the, the <laughs> usual. Do you know what? Do you know what? I've done this twice in two days. It's be- it's because. There's an X Files episode called Unusual Suspects, and I keep thinking of that. Right, anyway.
3: that's, that's the straight to DVD sequel. Yes,
2: yeah, yes. The usual suspects. I remember when you said the usual suspects. I was, I said, that's fantastic. That's brilliant because I, I think that's one of the best films ever made, personally. So great, great choice. Why the, why the usual suspects then?
3: Um, well, because it's the greatest movie ever made. Do you want me to do more than that? <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> well, like I say, I mean, this is the one that I tend to measure before and after, like I said, because um, I do think that as, as great as a piece of film is, sometimes it's, it's everything else that's sort of around that that really contributes to maybe something your favourite film, I think, with that. And with this one, I saw this film, it would have been summer of 2001, just before I went to university. I was introduced to it by a friend of mine. I was just told, this is a great film. It's got a great twist at the end. You'll love it. And we watched it. And I was just genuinely blown away. Um, There's a lot, for a lot of different reasons, there's a lot of great stuff about it, which we'll get into in a minute. But I'm going to quote Stephen King here. He made a great comment about the film that was out earlier last year called Now you See Me, where he described it as like being hit in the face with a Swiss watch. (laughs) Okay. And that, for me, was usual suspects. It's... I just I didn't know what to think of it. I came into it knowing almost nothing about it beyond the fact that it had Kevin Spacey and Pete Postlethwaite, in And I thought, like, okay, this is fine. And it was and it was directed by Brian Singer, and I knew who that was because that because very I think it was the summer before that, X-Men had happened, the very first X-Men, and I remember, I was really into that film at the time. So I kind of knew that and I, I knew that this was a film that made his name. So I thought, like, okay, that's fair enough. And you know, and then it gets presented to me and you see the film for the first time and you know what I'm talking about with that. Me. The first time you see it and you get to the end of the film and it's been a great film and then that ending happens. Yeah, yeah. And it is just like, okay, I now need to watch this again Yeah, immediately. Absolutely. And then also the other side of that is that very shortly after that, um, I was browsing around a bookshop in Leeds and I actually came across the, uh, the screenplay for it by Christopher McQuarrie which had been published as a paperback no was published in a paperback novel format still laid out like a script and everything it was there. and I've still got that and I remember reading that it was one of the first scripts that I'd ever read and I was just I was just blown away by how clever the writing was both in the film and obviously in the script of course and then the end result with that was that it made me that it's a very real part of the reason I wanted to become a writer
2: well this it's, is it I was about to say that you know both of us obviously are writers it's how we know each other it's how we've met yeah because we've written together and all this kind of thing. And it's obviously when you write things, you always have your touchstone movies or TV shows that you, you consider to be an inspiration as to why you, you wanted to start writing your own stuff. And you can completely, I can completely understand why The The Usual Suspects is that kind of film. I didn't see it as young as you. I, did, I saw it quite a few years later. So it, it's not one of my original like touchstone films, but it certainly makes me want to write more because... You always think, someone wrote something this good. (laughs) The challenge would be, how do you, because it's got to be one of the best scripts that I think has ever been written, and certainly put onto film. So, you know, it's like an inspiration, isn't it? Can I write something this good?
3: Definitely, and Christopher Query won the Oscar for that, and deservedly so, Um, and amazingly so as well, considering the fact that it's really only his first produced script. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the the film that Brian Singer had made proves that he'd been peripherally involved in, but this was his thing. It was his idea from the word go. Mm-hmm. Um, and the great thing is, you hear him get you hear him talk about it, and he said he, he was not trained in screenwriting. He had no idea what he was doing. He came up with an ending. He needed a beginning. He would written this. He'd written this opening scene of two guys on a boat with the next an explosion. He decided, right, that's five pages. That's half a day's work. I'll put that in, and then I'll go from there. And then I've got to do half a day's work from here. So, he bomb that on the front, and then he just kind of worked it out as he went along. He didn't really have to know what he was doing with that. And the thing was, he said since that had he had any kind of screenwriting education, he'd never have been able to write the film. Yeah. Because what he didn't know was that he was breaking all the rules as he was doing, you know. He, he didn't know, he, he, you know, as he said, he wasn't aware that he wasn't allowed to use flashbacks and the narrator couldn't lie and all this type of thing. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened had he had any kind of formal screenwriting education. because He was doing everything they tell you not to do. Mm. And then was hailed as a genius for having broken all the rules afterwards.
2: <laughs> yeah, and now it's kind of like some of the rules he broke are, are now rules themselves, <laughs> or they're things that people, you know, aspire to co- try and achieve. Quite often, failing, admittedly, don't they? You know, they'll they'll try and do something that's as twisty turny or as clever as usual suspects, and it doesn't work. But it's like it's proof, if anything, that the inverted commas, the rules. Are a hindrance more than a, a help sometimes, aren't they? With with writing a truly great piece of work. And he's
3: spoken about that. He said a good few times that he now regrets having learned the rules of screenwriting because it's really hampered what he can do since. Yeah. He, he preferred the, he, I think he preferred the innocence of not knowing what he was doing, so he could just kind of work yeah. it out as he went. Yeah.
2: And what, what's What's great as well, I think, about this is that it's it's very much something that went from script to screen, isn't it, without much in the way of change. It's like it's, it's actually, like you say, like the Swiss watch thing you said, the quotes, it is very much like that, and Brian Singer manages to actually make it feel like that on screen, doesn't he? It? It's not just like on the page.
3: Definitely, and you, you listen to the story behind that and the struggles that they went through to actually get the film made. I mean, you forget how hard it is to... Because the film was done on a stupidly small budget, like $5 million or something like that, which is nothing, really. And um, it was... Try, uh, the, you, you hear the stories that they went through trying to get it made. Literally, that film only got made because the guy who plays Dave which as Palmandari, uh, had a big role in a Woody Allen film prior to that. So having, his, having him attached to it in a small role was able—they were able to get money on board because of that. That's you bad. know, you forget—you you forget stuff like that. You forget that Kevin Spacey was at the time a very little-known, well-respected but not famous at all New York theatre actor mm-hmm. who wasn't well-known on screen pre, uh, prior to that. And it, you forget that most of the cast, like I say, were unknown, with the exception of Pete Posselt, did not in there. So, So the end result is you went in and nobody had a clue what we were doing. It's like, had, that, had there been bigger stars in that part, I think you possibly would have figured out the twists of it a lot sooner with that. Yeah,
2: yeah. And you think about it, it's, it I was going to mention the cast, and it's, it, you can't really, it's one of those films where you look at the people playing the parts and you can't imagine anyone better in each part. I mean, I can't imagine a better... What what what's 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 Gabriel Byrne's character in it? What's he called Keaton. It? Keaton, yeah. I can't I can't imagine a better Keaton than Gabriel Byrne, you know. And it's it's just it's really it's really well cast and, and I think it's as an ensemble. I mean, they're they're just amazing. I mean it's it's career bests, I think, for some of yeah. these actors, isn't it really?
3: And some of it's well off the page as well, because I mean they had the Caspinicio del Toro in here, Spencer. Mm. And he's not remotely the, that that actor is not remotely the character that's on the page. Uh, that character was written as being sort of an older character. I mean, Christopher McQuarrie said that they had Harry Dean Stanton in mind for that part, and oh, it. No. Uh, it was going to be very different. comes Benicio del Toro who is a very, very eccentric actor in the best sense of the word. Looks at the script and realizes that he's only really got one function in the script, which I won't reveal. But it kind of doesn't matter what he says, so therefore he's going to make his dialogue completely, un- completely unintelligible. <laughs> Yeah. To the point where in the film, the actors actually ask him, "What the fuck are you saying? that, actor yeah. <laughs> keep doing it? And it's, uh, none of that and uh, none of that scripted is because Brian singer said, "Okay, if, if you can't understand what he's saying, we can't either make him say it again.
0: Brilliant.
3: That the, <laughs> and uh, yeah. it made that character infinitely more memorable than the than the slightly forgettable fifth member of the gang
2: that he was on the uh, on the page. And, and that that shows the I think that how good a director Brian Singer was already to have the have the bravery to do that and to trust his actors and to trust the casting and all that kind of thing. You know, it just adds up to a proper collaboration, doesn't it? I think. And you know, well, you got one
3: of your actors coming in and by his own admission decided to play the part as a black Chinese Puerto Rican Jew. Then, yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Which is how he describes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> i see, I think the character I, I I really really like the most.
0: you have an airbnb your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host
2: actually he's pete postlethwaite as kobe ashi kobe uh, ashi yes because it's a really really enigmatic role all the way through isn't it you you never really know where he's from or who he is really do you it's it's fascinating he plays it so ambiguously it's really memorable
3: and he's terrifying i mean because he's got almost nothing there to work with he's in i think two scenes yeah and he comes in and he's just absolutely terrifying. Yeah. and it's it, there's that brilliant scene in the pool hall where they're meeting for the first time and he's just lurking there and he starts talking and like they've all co- they've come to have a reckoning with him and then he starts talking and he's like no i've come to have a reckoning with you idiots Yeah. yeah. and just yeah. straight he owns every single one of them in that room it's, <laughs> it's
2: stunning it's stunning, and you know he's um, the late, obviously Pete Postlethwaite, uh, no longer with us. But he, you know, he, he played. He was in many films where he, he just kind of pretty much stole them. Um, mostly, that I mean, he. If it wasn't for Kevin Spacey, I think I think he would have stolen the film. But I think it's fair to say that Kevin Spacey probably does steal this film, doesn't he? Really? Yes, it's, it was a
3: star-making term for him in every sense of to, in every sense of the word. I mean, he was. I kind of I can't think of who the modern day equivalent that, of that would be at that time. Possibly somebody like Michael Fassbender suddenly getting a big yeah. role, or something like that. But like, he, but again, he went from relatively unknown New York theatre actor to best supporting actor at the Oscars with that one part.
2: Well, you know what? You yeah. know what surprised me? Just quick, just quickly, just thinking of this, I, uh, I I had no idea that Kevin Spacey was in See No He See No Evil, Hear No Evil. Right, the Gene Wilder, um, Richard Pryor film. And I oh, was,
3: oh God! Was he? Re- I didn't know he that. Was,
2: either. He was. And I watched it with some friends. We had a, a Gene Wilder Richard Pryor night recently around my mates, and uh, yeah, it, we see them seen him even here anymore. No, and he's, yeah. he plays this villain. He's like a he's like a little um, slightly camp gangster. <laughs> it's like <laughs> eighties, late late yeah. And he, it's really, and we were like, that's Kevin Spacey. And he's obviously before he's famous. So to think <laughs> he went from that, very you know, he's, he's in a supporting role with Joan Severance for God's sake, right? So it's like to go from that to then. Obviously, within the space of like a year or two, he'd done Usual Suspects and Seven, hadn't he? Yes. Um, both of which kind of went, went, okay, who is this guy? You know, it was, uh, and especially, it's really this one, isn't it, that made him, like you say.
3: He'd he got him his first Oscar, he won, he's won another one since, with uh, was it American Beauty He got the Oscar for the oh, second I'd, time around?
2: I'd imagine, he probably more than
3: likely. I think, it, I think it was, anyway, and uh, in... It's, hes suddenly one of the most credible actors in the world, and just—he's one of those people who—it like, doesn't even matter when he's in shit, and he's been in shit. Yes. yes. He's always good. Yes. And yes. being able to always be good, even when the material around you is dreadful, is a hell of a in an actor, and he's got it.
2: Yeah. Completely. And, and <laughs> when he's when he's working with something this good, he's just phenomenal. You know. Yes.
3: that's... And like I say, I mean, you look at the people whose careers it launched, I mean, it's the entire Brian Singer, Chris Brian Singer himself, um, John Ottman, who edited and composed the score for it, does both of them, he always works with him on that. And he's very instrumental in why the ending of that film, which we haven't really talked about, why the ending of that film works is the, the two montage sequences at the end where it's all edited together brilliantly. That was, None of that's in the script. Yeah. It's, it was all put together in the cutting room. And without it the film wouldn't have that kick at the end of it. And then as it Christopher Macquarie himself, who kind of fell on a bit on hard times after that, because like he made the film and then he won his Oscar and then had a very hard time getting anything made for a very long time afterwards. And it's only recently since he's hitched his wagon to Tom Cruise that he's actually been able to properly start making movies and get the respect that I think he deserves. Well,
2: well, he's doing uh, Mission Impossible Five, isn't he? Now, I think.
3: Yes, he's worked with Cruise a lot. I mean, he did Valkyrie, Valkyrie. he did Jack Reacher, an uncredited rewrite on Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. Um, Apparently, most of the dialogue in that film is him, apparently. And all Um, of
2: all of those films are actually good. You know, they they're all good. You know, so.
3: And now Mission Impossible Five is happening, and he's uh, co-writing and directing it.
2: And it, it, I'd be very surprised if that wasn't very good. I mean, you know, with that kind of pedigree, and mm. you know, and like like we say, the last the last one was was a de- more than decent film. So no, it's it's good. it deserves these guys, and obviously Brian Singer's directed poss- what could be, well, if not the biggest film, but one of the biggest films this year with X-Men Days of Future Past. So it's yeah, like which I can't ones. wait
3: to see. I'm really, really genuinely looking forward to that. Because I mean, the X-Men franchise has never been in better hands than when he's actually been involved, either as a director, <laughs> as he was on the first two, or as a producer, as he was on X-Men First Class. Yeah, so the, yeah. the films have never been in safer hands than when he's been in charge of it. And I, can't, I genuinely can't wait to see what he's doing with this one.
2: Yeah, it's going to be great so that it's it's good that all these guys are you know um getting the accolades in terms of just to finish in terms of the um the ending of usual suspects because it's one of those it's one of those things that I think it's important and we talked about this just before we recorded but it's yeah. important to you know if people want to see this film and and you know it's more than the sum of its parts I as in mean, most people talk about the the end and if they if you know the twist at the end then is it, is it important to remember that there is more to this film than that twist?
3: Definitely, and that's a point I can't make forcefully enough. Because Although, just to back that up a bit, the twist at the end of this film, like, I've seen a lot of films with twists at the end, some great, some bad. Um, this is one of only a couple of films that I've ever seen, where not only does the, the ending of the film completely take you by surprise, it then makes you completely reevaluate. everything you've seen up until that point you have to look at the film in a completely different light after you've seen that Um, and it's one it's one of the reasons why that film is my favorite film because i can watch that i can there's never a limit to the number of times i can watch that because every time i watch the film i see more yeah you see more of the layers of what's going on even down to i watched it this morning and what i didn't realize and like stuff like the uh, the cop that's interrogating them all at the beginning when they're in the lineup. Uh, Who you don't see his face, you just see his stomach because of the way it's into the shot. It's actually it's actually Christopher McQuarrie. He's 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 acting that. So you know, silly little things like that. But um, but the thing is, it's not it's not one of those films where knowing the twist is kind of the point, really, to a certain extent. I mean, it's like um, I was going to give an example, but I won't because I don't want to ruin another film in the process there. But. I had a conversation with my dad not too long ago about the film because it, it had been on the it had been on the telly and um, he'd just come in and said, "Have you got that? In, have you got that on DVD?" It's like, "Yes, I have." Like, "Can I borrow it?" Yeah, and I lent him the DVD. And we just got talking about him and I was, we mentioned the twist. It doesn't. I can't even remember what the twist is. You know, I just remember it was a great film with a great ending. Mm. And that's kind of it. The, the ending. It's not the be all and end all, but it's an infinitely. It's, it's an incredibly clever film and. There's a reason why that's gone down in history as one of the greatest twists ever. Yeah. Um, slightly spoiled by one of the most famous bits of graffiti of all time, where um, when the po- when the film originally came out, the poster was the five guys in the lineup. <laughs> Apparently, Kevin Spacey was on a tube in London, gets off at I think it was Oxford Circus, and the poster was up on the subway wall, and someone had actually drawn an arrow pointed to one of them with the words "He did it." <laughs> that,
2: <so>. Yeah, that's. <laughs> That's just evil. That's really evil
3: doing that. <laughs> it's like that gag in the Simpsons where they walk out the theater and he says, "Like, man, I can't believe Bill Gr- I can't believe Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father." Maybe one of the cues is like, "Oh, thanks very much." <laughs> yeah, but
2: well, this is it, and I think uh, I think if people remember that, you know, Harry ends as it, as well known as that is, he he's so successful because of everything else that led up to that. I think yeah. that's the biggest thing to remember. Um, mm-hmm. So,
3: it's like, like my dad said; he phrased it perfectly. It's a great film that happens to have a great ending. Yeah. It's not a great ending on a mediocre film. The film itself is brilliant. The ending puts it over the top. It's not one where because you know the twist, it's going to ruin your enjoyment of the film. Quite the contrary, because as I say, I can keep watching it and it never ever fails to impress me. Does this film, and that's why it's my, and that's why I pick this one very easily as my favourite.
2: Well. To sum up, then, finally, what would the biggest piece of advice to somebody who's not seen it? What's the what's the one big piece of advice you'd say? You, you, you watch the Usual Suspects because of this. What would you say?
3: That's a tricky one um, because it's the greatest movie ever made. Um, <laughs> do it. That's the no, that's the cop out answer. Um, <laughs> but as far, like I say, as far as my own emotional emotion investment, emotion, because I watch it because it's a film that genuinely opened me up to what you can do with a brilliant, brilliant script, and that's there's one thing that's used, as much as anything it's one of the best written movies I think I've ever seen and again I'll come back to that point in my dad's it's a great film with a great ending and I really can't say any fairer than that
2: perfect perfect I can't recommend it enough and if it's both if me and Adam are both agreeing on a film then you know it's good <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's brilliant thanks very much for uh, coming on Adam and like Nat, he's gone <laughs> It's that time of year again, that means it is Marvel time. And this year's opening offering from the biggest comic book studio in the world is Captain America The Winter Soldier.
1: Most of the intelligence community doesn't believe he exists. The ones that do call him The Winter Soldier... He's a ghost. You'll never find him.
0: I joined S.H.I.E.L.D. to protect people. Captain, to, to build a better world, sometimes means tearing the old one down. And that makes enemies.
2: because I re-watched the first Captain America movie literally a day before going and seeing The Winter Soldier, a film that I have been looking forward to for quite some time after a trailer that really, really impressed me. And I remembered just how much I liked the first Captain America film. I I genuinely think it's the second best Marvel film building up to the Avengers. I I still think the first Iron Man is the the best one. Uh, Ironically, the fact it's the very first film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that connects, but I still think that's the best film of them all so far. But then I think Captain America The First Avenger is just just behind that, because it's really, really good, and it gets a lot right, and it nails that really pulpy sort of wartime tone mixed with a war movie, Uh, and has that real sense of Indiana Jones, Rocketeer-style sense of adventure, which makes sense given Joe Johnson directed Rocketeer and then directed First Avenger. So it, it's, a, it's a really good film, and it, it's, it's got a lot, of, a lot of fun, it's got a lot of wit, it's got a lot of pace, it's got a lot of good acting. So I remembered how much I liked that, and so I'd heard a lot about how The Winter Soldier was going to be very, very different from that. Because what Marvel, to their credit, try and do is every single time they come out with a sequel, they do try and do something different with it. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. You know, and it's actually thinking about it more often than not, it doesn't. I mean, the sequels to Iron Man and Thor were both decidedly iffy. Iron Man two was was long and baggy and, and dour, and you know, Thor two was a real hodgepodge of, of elements that didn't quite fit together, even though it had a certain bits really going for it, uh, and felt like Avengers light. I would say the Winter Soldier is the first sequel to one of these Avengers characters that actually really does work and stand on its own two, own two feet. I think the first Avenger is still my favourite of the two from a personal perspective, because I love all that kind of World War II, pulpy, occult, supernatural kind of stuff, that very Hellboy-esque kind of thing. But I think The Winter Soldier is a better film. Um, even though it's not perfect, and it does it does get a few things wrong, and it's not quite what what it could have been, but I think on the whole it's very good. Because what it does is it naturally takes Captain America into the area that we thought he was going. You know, at the end of, of the first Avenger, of course, he wakes up and he's in he's in the modern day and he's disoriented by the fact he's in the modern day. And of course, then you know he's in Avengers Assemble, where he he basically is thrust into the the big. Plot of Loki, and, and he and he has to work with Tony Stark, and he clashes with him. But it was, it, it, and there were, there were little moments where we see how Captain America doesn't quite fit yet, and that he's still revered by certain people. But it, it, obviously, it wasn't the focus of the film. He was just involved, and that was about him, you know, becoming part of the Avengers and becoming part of this unit, and it working. So the Captain America sequel is always going to have to be about where is what who is he in this new world? What, what, what's his place? What is the place of Steve Rogers in? the modern day and what they've chosen to do quite cleverly is, is plonk Captain America. this really almost cheesy kind of, you know, star spangled man with a plan as the song in the, the original film went into this very murky conspiracy thriller, Jason Bourne esque world. And it, it's a really, it's a really interesting mix what they, what they do. Of course, this time there's two new directors in uh, Joe and Anthony Russo. I've come from TV and a couple of other projects, but they're fairly new, new directors, certainly to Marvel. And again, it's Marvel You know, getting people who they haven't had before to work on things. They do a really good job because they've got a very clear through line for what they want from this Captain America film, from the start. Right from the beginning, we're, we're, you know, it's, it's, a lot of it is set in Washington. A lot of it is set in the heart, the very homeland of America. And it is very much about what is America? What is the place of people like Captain America, what is the place, in fact, of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is the main agency at the heart of the Marvel Universe in terms of a lot of these superheroes. And, and of course, heavily featured in The Avengers. It's heavily it's featured in various other films. Um, but this is the first film that really hits S.H.I.E.L.D. head on. And, of course, there's the TV show Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which I haven't yet seen and um, I discussed in a previous podcast. But S.H.I.E.L.D. has not really been fully hit on as to what it is. And this film is very much tying that into Captain America's journey of, of what's his place here. And when he realises that the world he thought existed, and the world he fought for, in fact, back in the 1940s, doesn't quite exist. And it's about then him having to figure out how he, how he deals with that. And it, it does become, very quickly, a very murky, dark mysterious born esque world where you can't trust anybody. In fact, there were moments of this that actually reminded me of The X-Files, which is my favourite TV show. And it really, there were, there were real moments where it felt like that. The X-Files, of course, took a cue from a lot of the 70s conspiracy thrillers, which which is this film is taking a cue from. Things like, you know, The Parallax View, All, All the President's Men, Three Days of the Condor, a lot of those films. And, you know, this wears its influences very much on its sleeve. And that, that's fine, that is fine. You know, a lot of films, they, they try and get away with with that, but the first Avenger was the same. That very much wore its, you know, its influences of all this pulpy kind of adventure stuff on its sleeve, and it worked because it had enough self-referential, tip of the hat to that to get get through it. And this kind of does as well in a way, although it's a lot more serious. This film is a lot more serious. There's a lot less comedy. In fact, there's probably less comedy in this film than any of the other Marvels. There, there are moments. There are moments of comedy. There are moments that will raise a smile, particularly between the relationship between Captain America and. Um, Sam Wilson played uh aka Falcon played by Anthony Mackie who's actually a really really good addition. He feels a bit more like um he feels a bit like War Machine, a bit like Don Cheadle in the Iron Man films. Uh, and he's he's a great he's a great addition to this to this cast and I, I imagine that he'll be back for the third film. Uh and I, I wouldn't be averse to him popping up in the Avengers actually because he's he's a really good character and there's a, there's a nice bit of comedy between them. There's a little bit as well between um between Captain America and uh, Black Widow as well. And she's very, very important to this. She's very crucial. Played again by Scarlett Johansson, you know, flipping from under the skin, which, you know, couldn't be any different from this. And she's good, you know. She's, again, that slightly mysterious, slinky figure. But it gets a little bit more under her skin as well, this film. And it kind of taps into where she sees herself and the fact that if Captain America is this very straight-laced, trustworthy figure, she's kind of like the opposite. But yet they still manage to form a bond, even though there's trust issues and things like that. And as we said, just while we're on the subject of, of the characters, Chris Evans is excellent still as Captain America. You know, he's still got that square-jawed heroism, but he's likeable and he's not boring either. Now, yeah, Captain America could very easily be a boring lead because he's, he, he is fairly one-dimensional in a way. And that doesn't quite change in this. He, he, he learns a few lessons. He, he, he has a few challenges to him, but he's, still, he's always going to be very stock All-American. All but that's okay, because everything else around him is, is very fluid and circular and, and all this. Samuel L. Jackson isn't in a massive amount of this, but he plays an important role as Nick Fury, because this really does tap into you know, Nick Fury's place in everything, and and and, and it's not as secure as you might think. And to be fair, Sam Jackson may not even be in a lot of it, but he, he gets by far the best action sequence in this whole film, which is this fantastic chase through the streets of... Of, of Washington DC where he's being pursued by these these villains and he has this souped up shield car which is just awesome <laughs> that was possibly my favourite part of the film even though there are a lot of really good action beats throughout this and it's well directed you know it has a real clear sense of tone and hue and all this kind of thing you know it's got it's got some really really visceral action moments it's got some it's got some it's got some well staged beats and you know, it's, it's got a real sense of confidence, I think, in terms of how it's presented and how it comes across and what it's trying to say. And it is, it is trying to make a real political comment underneath everything, you know, and that's in- encapsulated by Robert Redford um, in this as Alexander Pierce, who's one of the main S.H.I.E.L.D. guys. And uh, A, it's great that Robert Redford's in a film like this because you very rarely see him do this kind of stuff. And he himself has said that he was curious about what kind of um, filmmaking this is and that's why he did it. Uh, and of course, it's it's a wonderful little nod to these 70s conspiracy thrillers, given that Robert Redford was in one or two of the big of the best ones, you know. And he's uh, he's he's very tethered to that kind of style of filmmaking. So he's and he's very good, you know. He's very good. He's got a very oily kind of role, Robert Redford, and he's great, you know. And he's, he's remarkably youthful, given he's in well into his 70s. <laughs> so he's really good, and he he encapsulates the real murkiness and the questions that revolve around what Shield is and what it means, and, and, and the, the whole idea basically is because it's got this, there's this central plot about how the freedom could be compromised by this massive new weapon system, and without going into too much detail, it really does compromise what S.H.I.E.L.D. means, and the, the biggest thing that I think this film does, and one of the biggest things that impressed me, was that it's very unafraid to rip up significant parts of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, by the end of this film, things have definitely changed. More so than they had in they had in Thor two or, or in Iron Man three, they were, those were more personal to an extent to the characters in a way. But here the whole, a lot of stuff has changed, and it, it does very much tee up Avengers two to really exist on a on a very different playing field than the first Avengers. Quite indeed, what it means for Agents of Shield as well, I've no idea because it, it does toss a lot of things up in the air, and at the same time it's. It tethers back to the first Avenger in in surprising ways, actually. I thought it was going to be very, very distant from that, but it it really does. It actually connects back far more in terms of story to what that film set up, which I was genuinely pleased about, because it it did feel like there were quite a few elements from that film that were left um, dangling, and I wasn't 100% sure that that Winter Soldier was going to pick them up, but it does. It does two big problems really with it one it's a bit, a bit too baggy it's a bit too overlong it could have been cut a bit more it stands at um 2 hours um, 15 minutes i think which is which is too long you know the first film managed to do it in a roughly about 2 hours 2 hours and a little bit this film could have done with losing 10 15 minutes because there are moments especially in the first uh, half that drag slightly and it, it, but once it kicks off it kicks off and it pretty much keeps rolling but it could have trimmed a little bit and the other big the other big thing is the winter soldier it's himself because one of the things that this film doesn't quite nail are the twists there, there are certain twists in this film that you will get you if you've a been paying attention and B if you know how films work and you know how narrative works there are a few things you're gonna you're gonna know one in particular about a main character and his fate that you will you won't be surprised at in the least and secondly, who the Winter Soldier is. Because if, if you know anything about Marvel backstory and lore, and again, if you're paying attention, it will be blindingly obvious who the Winter Soldier is. So, but unfortunately, it's played a little bit like Khan in uh, Star Trek Into Darkness in that it's supposed to be this big <gasps> gasp moment where it's not. And, you know, it takes the film half the, half the movie to re- reveal who he is. And you won't probably be surprised and you'll probably know who that is. If you, if, if you aren't, it, will, it may work better. But he's not in enough of it to warrant it, anyway. You know, the Winter Soldier, given it's called the Winter Soldier, he's not in that much in film, and and the the way he's constructed doesn't really work because it is set up. You know, it is set up for, for future stuff, partly without giving too much away, and that's a little bit to the film's detriment. But on the whole, on the whole, it's really well done. It's it's quite grown up. It's definitely different in tone to a lot of a lot of other Marvel films. It's more a lot more grounded it's a superhero film only on a technicality really that it is far more of a grounded jason bourne esque thriller with slightly punched up elements it's not supernatural like like thor 2 or anything like that and it's it definitely will lead into much bigger much much exciting things certainly for avengers 2 and definitely for captain america 3 um, it's charts a roadmap, and it's nice to know the Russo brothers are, are returning for the third film because they've definitely started something that will be exciting to see follow up so I would say that even though it's not perfect it is marginally better film than the first one and it's probably the best on reflection it's probably the best Marvel film since Avengers Assemble how do we know the good guys from the bad guys if they're shooting at you they're bad of day, another podcast complete. That's the end of this episode of Black Hole Cinema. Hopefully you've enjoyed my reviews on those two big hitters. One really good, one mm, fair to middling, but they both worth they are both worth seeing. Certainly take your kids if you've got any, go and see The Muppets because I'm sure they'll enjoy it and you definitely should check out Captain America The Winter Soldier. So thanks for listening. Next week there are a few new uh, films out. There's one I'm still hoping to get to, which I haven't been to see yet, which will be out, which will have been out in a couple of weeks by the time you hear the next podcast. But I'm hoping to still include it if I get a chance. And there are three fairly big films certainly, two fairly big films and one more indie kind of film that I want to get to see hopefully next weekend, which are all out roughly at the same time. So we'll see some of them, maybe the week the podcast after the next one. But uh, we'll see how I go. You know, we'll see how I go. It all depends on what I'm doing and. And the films that are out and such like that. So, anyway, you can, as ever, uh, make any comments you want to say about uh, the podcast on uh, Twitter at Tony underscore O underscore Black. And you know, you want to mention anything about the podcast? Tell me what you think. Tell me what you think we could add. Things like that. Uh, there will be more guest spots from people uh, possibly next week. There are a few that have been recorded that are waiting to go. There are a few that I intend to record over the Easter holidays. Um, I mapped out a few potential ideas for future podcasts, which I'm quite excited about. So hopefully we'll get to do those uh, going forward as we head into the summer months. So um, all I can say is thank you if you're continuing to listen on iTunes or on Podomatic. Uh, I do appreciate you tuning in. And I'll see you next time. Have a great week of movies, guys.